eavesdrop on experts, stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. My name is Nick Tochka. I'm senior lecturer in music and head of musicology and ethnomusicology at the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music at the University of Melbourne. A historian and ethnographer, Nicholas Tochka researches popular, traditional and art musics in Europe and the Americas, with a particular emphasis on the politics of music making since 1945. Dr. Tochka is currently working on a book manuscript titled Rocking in the Free World, Popular Music and the Politics of Freedom in Post-War America. It examines how post-war politics influenced the reception and practice of rock genres in the US between the 1950s and the 1980s. Nicholas Tochka sat down for a Zoom chat to talk about his work with Dr. Andy Horvath. How do you describe what you do when you meet new people? You do meet new people. You do get out of the office, don't you? Well, this past year, I haven't. I haven't really gotten out of out of the office. Actually, that's true. I haven't actually got out from behind my microphone either. But if we were to have a virtual barbecue on Zoom, how would you introduce yourself? Yeah. Well, the first thing I do when I introduce myself to new people is explain that even though I am a lecturer in music and I teach at the conservatorium, I actually don't give private music lessons. Uh, So I'm a guitarist and a bassist and I play all things strings. But what I do is I, I teach and I research the social and the cultural history of music making, especially with an emphasis on popular music since 1945. So what impact does society have on the music that is made? It sounds like a really broad question, but let's start somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and that's a that's a really good question. That's sort of like a, a bread and butter question in, in the discipline of ethnomusicology and popular music studies. So I think that one thing to say is that uh, there's this kind of older understanding of music as being transcendental, a kind of 19th century romantic understanding of music as existing outside of uh, sort of political and economic conditions. That kind of romantic transcendental understanding of music as, uh, you know, art for art's sake is sort of that 19th century slogan that I'm talking about, uh, is something that uh, is is still, I think, to a certain sense with us today. And it's it's something that, you know, when a student uh, signs up for my classes, uh, you know, we spend quite a bit of time uh, talking about sort of acknowledging that that's part of our heritage here in the West, that understanding of music. Um, Today, however, I think that it it is becoming more commonplace, and especially in sort of a lot of my own work and my own teaching, to really drill down into and try to understand. uh, I mean, I like to think of it in my own work as the kind of political or economic conditions in which people make music, people listen to music, people evaluate music, they assign value or meaning or significance, they argue, they debate one of the things I try to look at is uh, sort of all of these verbs. So all of the things that people do with and about music. And for me, that's really kind of a window onto how exactly music has uh, sort of political meaning or social meaning. Are there categories of music like 
I can think of protest songs. I can think of songs that are kind of like self-expression that reflect what society is thinking about. But I can also think of songs that almost seem like self-therapy. It's personal. It's not a public message. What are the categories of societal impact on music? Yeah, and that's something I'm really interested in in my own work, uh, especially my recent work on popular music in the United States in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. So this idea that music, and especially certain kinds of popular music, uh, that they might function as a form of self-expression, or they might function as a form of therapy. I mean, I guess the cliched example is that you would think that, oh, I'm going to kind of see into the deep, dark inner recesses of this singer-songwriter's soul to understand, uh, you know, sort of what makes them tick, um, that, that our heroes, that the people that we listen to are uh, going to be expressing themselves in a way that we connect with on, on records or on MP3s or, or however we listen to that music. One of the things I do in my work is try to look at uh, sort of the historical beginnings of this idea. So one of uh, the roots of this idea, it comes from the, the 1960s folk music movement. It comes from this idea that, uh, you know, a guy or a girl with a acoustic guitar, and even if they are singing into a microphone, that kind of unmediated presence, that sort of live first take connection with an audience, um, that's a sort of set of values and a set of um, tropes that quickly began to be uh, adopted and uh, assigned to other kinds of music in countries like the United States, uh, Great Britain, and Australia. Um, so I kind of see that idea that music can, uh, certain kinds of music can function as a, a form of self-expression or even sort of a, a form of therapy as um, something that comes about in the late 60s and, and early 70s, and something that begins to be valorized by rock critics, by fans, by the musicians themselves, and ultimately taken for granted. Give us some case studies that we can get our heads around where the political system like communism or dictatorship constrains or releases a certain type of music. I've done quite a bit of historical work on popular music in countries like Albania and communist countries in the former Eastern Bloc. And you also use the word uh, constrain, which I think is an okay word to use, but I would sort of shift it and say that instead of thinking about the ways in which a, a system like a, a communist or an authoritarian country constrains music making, I would sort of push us toward thinking about the ways in which it uh, shapes music making. To me, that's a little bit of a less value laden term. So in terms of how a political economic system like communism as, as it sort of developed in countries like Albania or the Soviet Union uh, shaped music making, in my own work, what I, I try to look at are the institutions and the kinds of uh, political and economic logics that organize the activities of musicians. So in looking at logics and looking at institutions, that also pushes us to think about the people that make up those institutions, as well as the people who in their day-to-day -day work are implementing, fashioning, creating policy that then gets turned into some kind of a, a logic that leads to the production of, of music. So you asked about a case study, and I'll, I'll get us to maybe a, a very kind of specific one. 
So I look at these annual music festivals that took place throughout the Eastern Bloc. Now, one way of thinking about a state-run music festival is to think about it in terms of how, for instance, the state uses this as a, a way to control individuals, a way to censor lyrics that it doesn't uh, approve of, uh, a way to put together artistic commissions that can say, yes, this is a correct form of music making. No, that's an incorrect form of music making. Now, when you're thinking about a festival like that, I, I think the incorrect thing to do is to assign agency to the state or to assign agency to some sort of faceless bureaucratic structure. So in my own work, what I did was I tried to track down the people who sat on artistic commissions. I tried to track down the notes and the minutes from those meetings to see how, for example, they assessed or evaluated um, a composition or a performance. Um, but I also tried to track down the composers and the performers and the singers to look at first what they were doing and why they were doing it, how they came to see um, uh, the kind of music they were making. And the kind of interesting thing that I found, even uh, in kind of an extreme case like uh, communist Albania, was that the musicians themselves often had non-political reasons that sometimes they paralleled the logics of the state. Um, sometimes they went against the logics of the state, but there wasn't uh, there, that kind of tension was, was okay. It was something that could exist. And so I think the thing that we need to uh, bear in mind when we, we think about even these kinds of um, historically illiberal kinds of um, political economic systems is just that, you know, for these systems to work, people had to, to work as part of the systems. You've also explored the opposite end of the spectrum in a free society like America. Yeah. So I think that while a lot of research that's looked at communist or state socialist societies has begun from a position where it's assumed that musicians were unfree or it assumes that we should not ascribe that much agency to musicians. I, I think that we can actually make um, sort of that, the um, mirror image argument about liberal democracies. I think that in the past, music scholars, rock critics, music fans, musicians themselves have tended to ascribe maybe too much agency and a little bit too much freedom uh, to musicians. When I write about the 1960s, especially in the United States, uh, one of the things that really fascinates me about this period is a shift that goes on. So in the late 50s and early 60s, a lot of American commentators and critics saw rock and roll, early rhythm and blues. Um, they saw this as something that was going to turn people into automatons. Uh, this was part of this mass culture critique where this music would brainwash people. Um, it was actually a source for unfreedom. It was a source for taking away individuals' freedom. And then over the course of five, six, seven years, we see this radical shift where rock music in the United States comes to signify not only a form of self-expression, like we, we talked about a couple of minutes ago, but a way to free yourself or to emancipate yourself. And so to me, that's that's really the, 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 the crux of the critique in my more recent work is to look at how those values about democracy and freedom get to be assigned to rock music at a particular time. And it's something we, we kind of take for granted right now. And I'll just give one sort of quick example. Um, 
even after the election of Donald Trump in 2016, one of the first things that a lot of popular musicians and commentators started to say was, well, no matter what happens, it's going to be great for, and then insert particular kind of resistant music, punk or hardcore, or it's going to generate this as, as if a shift or a slide toward authoritarianism is necessarily going to be reflected in sort of these uh, expressions of freedom from certain kinds of popular musicians. What misconceptions do people have about your area of research? Well, I, I think I can answer that maybe in, in two ways. I think the first way is is kind of a, a less meta way and more sort of in the weeds of, of what I do in my own research. Uh, so I've, I think I've kind of touched on this a, a couple of times that I would consider my work to be um, really revisionist in nature. Um, so just throughout my career, I, I've always kind of been drawn to questions and places and people, narrative stories that have kind of become commonplace, the, the kinds of things that we just um, sort of take for granted. Um, and I think that in my discipline of ethnomusicology, one of the contributions we make is by breaking down those, those narratives. So in my own work, the kind of misconceptions that I, I break down often have to do with these, um, either these stories that we've told about music making. Uh, so one major one in my early research was, uh, maybe we can think of it as kind of like the, the Shostakovich narrative. And it's the idea that uh, Dmitry Shostakovich, the Soviet uh, composer, that he was a secret dissident and that he was uh, somehow standing outside of the Soviet system, secretly encoding messages into his music, and that this was a real and serious and authentic form of political subversion or resistance. And it's something that, you know, we should celebrate and we should valorize, and that it tells us something about maybe the weakness of the, the Soviet system. So these sort of fantasies or, or narratives of resistance, uh, we, we don't just see these with uh, musicians like Shostakovich, but we, we kind of see them, uh, especially with rock music in the Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc. But the thing that was always kind of interesting to me was, was that these uh, kinds of approaches emphasized a relatively narrow band of musicians and narrow bands of music. Uh, so once we look outside of underground rock in Leningrad, or once we look outside of literally the, the sort of the 1% composers, people who are sort of so high up that they can, they can kind of do whatever they please and have all of these resources. Once we start looking at people who have just kind of day-to-day -day work, who kind of make up the, the entire fabric of one of these systems, we, we start to be able to revise that narrative and that story. And we can look at and we can tell different stories. So in my own research, yeah, I, I look at a lot of um, sort of these narratives and these stories, and I try to look at how they get to be told. And then I, I try to um, uh, go back to the primary sources or do interviews with people to see how we can um, sort of nuance or complicate them or, or maybe even, even revise them. And if I can just maybe follow up with, with a one that, thing that's a little bit more... Uh, meta <laughs> in terms of uh, that question about misconceptions. You know, I do think that, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in a discipline and, and we're living in a, a time period where uh, it's hard to make the case for why musicology would matter or why ethnomusicology would, would matter. 
um, you know, it's not something that can be easily translated into um, sort of the speak of, you know, job ready skills. It's not something that can be tra translated into, into this kind of um, uh, neoliberal university jargon. And I think that my sort of utopian uh, sort of, or maybe not utopian, but my sort of like uh, hope for my own um, sort of methods in, in writing is that this is something, uh, it's a sort of set of methods and an approach that could have real world value, even if it can't be translated into these kinds of uh, immediately applied skills. Talking about current times of COVID, how do you think this has impacted or will impact on musicology? I, I think it's it's had a really terrible impact. I mean, looking globally at, at for example, uh, the job market, it was already um, get, getting a, a continuing track job in a field like musicology or ethnomusicology. It was already like, you know, winning the lottery. And at this point, I think it's hard to make the case to uh, students that they should they should even buy a ticket. You know, in terms of students as well, I mean, I think one thing that we do see in Australian society and in U.S. society, and we've been seeing this in U.S. society for a couple of decades now, is this um, sort of vocational discourse about what university is and what it should train and prepare you for. And I think it's hard to make the case for a discipline like musicology or, or ethnomusicology in, in today's climate. And th that's kind of sad. It, it's kind of a scary thing because the, um, I think what it, it potentially means is that a lot of people who could potentially uh, have something to contribute to, to these disciplines, diverse viewpoints, people with different experiences may be selected out of um, sort of being in the pool of students who would even be um, th thinking of training in these disciplines. Nick, what surprised you about your research? Everything surprises me about my <laughs> research. Um, I mean, every time I, you know, dive into a, a new archive or pick up a, a you know, a set of newspapers um, talk to a person who I, um, I've just met, I think I'm constantly being surprised, which is, you know, really a source of um, joy and pleasure. And, and, you know, in the long slog from thinking and reading to getting the money to do the research, to doing the research, to writing it, to having it rejected by publications, and then finally getting it out. I, I think that sort of the little surprises along the way are are sort of what's most pleasurable for me. But I think that for me, um, the um, biggest surprises that I I often come about in in my own work are when you know when there's there's a really clear cut story or narrative that we tell about a particular musician or a particular um, style of music or a particular work or a performance, and once you start drilling down into the newspaper reviews from that period, once you start digging through the archives and seeing the notes of whatever sort of committee uh, greenlit that or funded it. You know, some very rarely are you surprised in the sense that oh, the story was completely wrong. But they begin to sort of uh, shift, and they they shift in such a subtle way sometimes that then in formation with uh, sort of the buildup and the accretion of of all these other little stories that you find, you you realize that you can often sort of the narrative uh, gets turned on its its head. And the thing that's sort of uh, exciting about that process is that oftentimes you realize that the main protagonists of, of the stories shift as well. Um, so you can start to give voice to a number of people who maybe had been left out of the original narratives, and you can start ferreting out their voices and their perspectives. 
and really changing your own perspective about about this music that that you know may be quite meaningful to you and and of course to others as well. Tell me a narrative that shifted. So one key example and case study I look at in my my current book manuscript is the relationship between uh, psychedelic drugs and music in the 1960s. Uh, so there is this story that's often told where it, it just kind of makes sense or it's natural that certain kinds of rock music are associated with certain kinds of drug use. Um, you know, the, the narrative, if, if you can remember the 60s, uh, then, then you weren't there, this sort of a cliche. So what I've been looking at is uh, I've been looking at the kinds of music that early proponents of psychedelic drugs uh, actually used in their clinical studies. And despite this kind of uh, overdetermined connection to bands like the Grateful Dead or Jefferson Airplane or all these other West Coast psychedelic bands, one of the things that you find is that in all of the early clinical trials on both the West Coast and the East Coast, the music that was being used were often classical music recordings. So in the late 1950s, Allen Ginsberg, he was at one of these CIA-funded uh, medical centers on the West Coast. He took psychedelic drugs under the uh, oversight of a medical professional, and he was asked, what recording do you want to listen to? And he picked a Wagner recording. Uh, and you find this throughout when you, we move to the East Coast and we see Timothy Leary's experiments at Harvard with uh, Richard Alpert, later Ram Das, the sort of middle-class white college students who were participating in these trials were inevitably asked, uh, you know, what kind of music do you want to listen to while we um, uh, dose you in that interview? And inevitably, they're choosing Schubert or Mozart or Bach, all of these classical musicians. Now, this isn't quite the uh, sort of picture that we have about LSD or magic mushroom uh, ingestion in, in the 60s. In fact, this is probably the opposite of what we think about when we think about LSD and the counterculture. But when we actually drill down into the primary sources and we look at why these kinds of uh, musics are being paired with these drugs, and then we can sort of learn really interesting facts about sort of the reasoning behind this. Uh, so for example, we see Timothy Leary and other experts who are really focused on curating a drug situation for their listeners. Um, they believe that there should be a guide and the guide should set a particular kind of setting for the drug user to have a particular kind of experience. Now, on the one hand, this is something that is very much part of the ethos and the values of the coming counterculture, uh, the idea that people should be exploring within themselves and that individuals should be uh, digging down underneath the surface of society in order to understand what's really going on. This is a major uh, sort of countercultural critique. But on the other hand, we soon have people in other areas who are, are criticizing this as being too hierarchical and almost authoritarian in the way that someone like Timothy Leary is trying to set a, a setting. And what this reveals maybe is sort of a, a different way into thinking about um, the ethos of the counterculture, one that doesn't begin from a natural uh, starting point that says, 
Well, the drugs were there to expand your consciousness because individuals were focused on expanding their consciousness and the music just kind of naturally linked up with or sort of made sense to be listening that it was all sort of this uh, sort of haze of things that just all kind of fit together. Uh, drilling down into even a small example like this is one way to kind of denaturalize those conditions and look at the kinds of debates that people had about how these different elements fit together. So that's the first part of the, the story. I, I, won't, I won't sort of uh, take too, too much time, but uh, just to say that when we, when we begin from by sort of shifting the story on its side and looking at it that way, it then forces us to ask, okay, well, why did people stop listening to Mozart and Bach while they got high? And why did they start listening to these other bands? Under COVID-19, we've come to appreciate the fact that we can't go to live gigs in music. Do you think this has changed the way we've thought about music and musicians? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of of two minds on this. I, I think that on the, you know, on the, on the one hand, one of the things that uh, this has done has pointed out to all of us just how much we rely on creative people. Uh, people who are artists, people who are musicians, people who make the television shows, the songs, the albums that we consume in our in our everyday life. I, I think the other thing, though, that that this has shown is when push comes to shove, um, government policy to support artists um, really hasn't hasn't been there. And in fact, in a lot of places in the world, there have even been sort of these exemptions that are, are kind of carved out. Uh, you know, when I talk to musician friends uh, and composers. Um, I, I think there's one positive, interesting thing is the way in which a lot of musicians have banded together to, to support one another. Uh, so, for example, a, a colleague of mine who's a composer in the Washington, D.C. area um, has talked to me about how he's cut his rates for commissions so that people can commission new works for him. Uh, I think that we see with like these band camp Fridays when people band together to support musicians and especially independent musicians and artists, you know, I think that that's a positive, that, that sort of sense of community. But when we look at sort of the large scale of the problem, we see that uh, there really hasn't been a response from above that, that sort of meets that scale. Something like, for example, in Depression era, United States creating a, um, a federal um, program to, to support and put artists to work. I mean, that seems almost unimaginable in today's political economic climate. There's a lot of musicians out there who are nodding as you're saying this. So next time we go to put on a piece of favourite music or we stop and reflect on some music we've just heard, what would you like us to think about? I thought you were going to ask me if I had sort of a, a drug dealer I could put you in touch with. Uh, you know, someone who, who researches and teaches about popular music, like the, the kind of music that isn't like sort of supposed to be good for you. It's, it's, it's supposed to be the fun stuff that you like listening to and you, you buy a, you know, I often tell my students this joke that I say, you know, welcome to Ethnomusicology 101. I say that you thought you liked listening to music and now we're going to suck all of the fun out of it. We're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about gender. We're going to talk about how it's all part of this terrible capitalist music industry. And so I think that when you sit down to listen to a piece of music, I don't listen that way. I, I do sometimes when I have my work hat on. But, you know, I think that there's certainly a case to be made for just the kind of pleasure of connecting with music on a human level. Dr. Nick Totchka, thank you. Thank you, Andy. 
Thank you to Nick Tochka, Senior Lecturer in Music and Head of Musicology and Ethnomusicology at the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music, the University of Melbourne. And thanks to Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on January 28, 2021. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.